Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Pagotto, who is the founder of Crooked Compass, an Australian experiential tour company that are all about cultural immersion and connection to place and people. She's just returned from one of the places that's been on my list for a bit, and if you're a regular listener, you've probably heard me talk about it before, so I'm excited to hear more first-hand observations from her. But... We're also going to discuss travel in general, how we can make more of our travel experience while lessening our impact, and more about group travel. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much, Natasha. Lisa, can you fill us in a bit about your background before starting Crooked Compass? It seems like travel's been part of your career in one way or another for a long time. Yeah, it absolutely has. Um, I've been in the travel industry for almost 22 years now. Uh, my background before starting Crooked Compass has covered all sorts of avenues from being a retail travel agent through to working for various wholesalers. Um, I was also a tour leader in Western Europe for a couple of seasons and um, have worked in various sales, marketing and product roles in the adventure space. I bet you've got lots of stories from those European tours back then. <laughs> I do, I do. And it's certainly one of those roles that you do and you're just like, how did I actually survive? <laughs> it would be exhausting. It would be like looking yeah. after a bunch of kindergartners, I would think. <laughs> Absolutely. 50, 18-year-olds is, yes, sounds great when you're in your early 20s. But on reflection, God, yeah, it's one of those things where you wonder how you survive. A lot of energy. So then you started Crooked Compass. When was that? I love the name, by the way. What was the inspiration for it? Oh, thank you. I started Crooked Compass in 2014 and the inspiration firstly for the name basically came from looking for a way to say off the beaten track, but without using mm. those cliched words. Mm -hmm. And that effectively is what the business has been about. It's been looking for destinations and regions that are a little bit more remote, a little bit less trodden in terms of mass tourism mm. and looking for opportunities to further expand people's horizons and introduce new destinations to those people who are looking for that, what's new and what's next. Mm, is that is that your own kind of travel ethos? Is that how you like to travel, taking the road less, less trodden? It is. It absolutely is. And, I mean, for me, when I was quite young in my, I guess, independent travel years, when I was 20 and went overseas to do my gap year, the first country I went to was Tunisia mm. because I, was, I wasn't interested in doing what everybody else did. I wasn't interested in boozing my way through Germany and that sort of thing. I, I wanted to see places that were not well known. Mm. And you still travel like that? I do. I do, yeah. Mm. What is it about the unknown that appeals to you so much? I think for me personally, it comes down to I'm – my personality. I'm, I'm a very curious person. Mm -hmm. I like to learn. I like to learn from firsthand experience. I don't like to be told what I can and can't do. And so to go to places that are remote and sometimes stigmatized or a little bit challenging to get to, there's also the thrill of achieving something mm. and um, also becoming further educated. And I guess there's, there's quite a few boxes that this style of travel ticks for the right type of person. 
And yeah, a lot, a lot of that comes down to yeah, naturally being a naturally curious person. So no going and lying on a sun lounge on a beach for you on a tropical island for two weeks then? I could not think of anything else. <laughs> I think we share very similar travel philosophies, Lisa. I couldn't think of anything worse either. Yes. I, I recently did a week in Vanuatu and that's how the flights were. They flew in and out within a week. Yeah. And I mean, I had a lovely time. I, I did spend some time in a hammock, but, you know, I also went and did other things and ventured out. But that's probably the closest that I've got in many, many years to, you know, lying around doing not much at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can completely appreciate that. What's the ethos of Crooked Compass? What makes it different? For, for us, it, it's all about self-education. It's about providing an opportunity to people to be able to go and see things that they wouldn't necessarily be able to do independently or have the confidence mm. to do, or it's just mm. actually not possible mm. um, without having, you know, expert assistance. And just to be able to deliver this experience that we, we say perspective shifting, that that's our mm. little word that we use that alters the way that people look at certain cultures or destinations. And yeah, I mean, the, the easiest way to summarize it is bringing it back to that, that education word that I keep dropping mm. in there and utilizing travel as a way to, to further build out people's understanding of the world. Mm. And of course, I think I think I don't know if it's it's after COVID, but I think people are looking for more now. They're realizing that travel is an interactive experience, or it should be an interactive experience, not just a passive one that you, you also bring something to the destination or or learn or take something away from the destination as well, do you think? Absolutely. And that's something that uh, has been a result of the pandemic um, in a positive way mm. when it comes to the way that people travel. People are traveling more mindfully. Mm. People are also traveling deeper as well. They're really looking for a way to connect with their destination. And as you say, not just experience something on that surface level. Mm. They really want to connect and they want to come away with a shift in how they feel um, fr from what they've experienced. And I think that's where, where we sit quite nicely and why we've done quite well in terms of recovery um, post-pandemic because we're, we're still here, we're, we're sitting mm. here with that at the core of what we do. And it's, it's certainly been a shift with, yeah, away from that, let's snap a picture and say we've been there and put it on Instagram. People do want that deeper connection. I know it's been talked about a lot, but I'm always fascinated by how companies, specifically ones that are so directly connected to travel that their livelihood basically depends on people traveling. I'm fascinated by how they survived the pandemic. What what did you do? <laughs> Me personally? So we, we kept our team as long as we possibly could. Once JobKeeper ran out, we, we shrunk back down to it just being me. I pivoted the business as much as I could. We built an incredible range of domestic mm. product and it sold incredibly well. And I thought, wow, this is great. We, mm. we can still keep going pretty much at a similar sort of pace to where we were with our international product, if this all sells. Mm. And it did. It sold incredibly well. But then we, we had state border closures and um, it pretty much all got cancelled. Mm. And so I was put in a position where business kept ticking over with what we were able to operate, but it was a, a very minimal scale. Mm. And I did what everybody else did and got a job that I hated to pay the bills in the meantime. Now, I've had a look at your website and while I'm not really a group traveller, it's been a very long time since I've been on a group trip, there are some fascinating destinations and experiences that you offer. How do you choose the places that you want to feature? 
So in terms of introducing a new destination to our portfolio, it really comes down to a couple of different elements. Firstly, um, we do rely very heavily on feedback from our guests. They are, of course, the, the backbone to our business. So the people who come on a Crooked Compass tour, they are really well traveled. And, you know, if we start to see a bit of a trend with what people are talking about as, you know, their future travels, their bucket list, we do listen and we do take note. And if we see that there's an opportunity for somewhere that we don't have in our portfolio, we, we take into consideration at time to do a bit of research to see if there's something that we can offer that is in line with our styles. Further to that, it also depends on what's happening around the world in it from a, I guess, a, a geopolitical mm. perspective as well. There's a lot of destinations that sort of come and go on our website because of world events. And so we do always have a heap of destinations sitting in our wings, ready to go for when things settle. So, for example, we relaunched Syria earlier this year and, and that did quite well for us up until obviously a few weeks ago mm. when the situation in the Middle East changed. But, you know, it's it's watching what our travellers are looking for. Where have they been? What are they looking for next? You sort of see a bit of a trend with our style of travellers, with the way that they experience the world. And they generally have the same sort of gaps mm. once they get to those last few countries. And that's really where we see opportunities for, for those types of travellers and try and ensure that we've got product in those areas. But, of course, that it's also safe to operate too. Well, one of those countries that I'm really interested in is Georgia, and we're talking about the country, not the American state here, of course. It's yeah. a place that I am desperate to go to, but when I tell people that I'm interested to go there, people just look at me blankly. I, I don't really understand how it's managed to stay so far off people's radars, and I know you've just been, so tell me about it. Yeah, it's a very interesting one, Georgia, especially for the Australian market here. I mean, Europeans have been going to Georgia for years and years and we're just, just been left behind. For us, we really started to see the spike in Georgia and that Caucasus region in general around 2018, 2019 was solid and 2020 was looking pretty damn impressive too. And then post pandemic, it did take a little while for the region to pick up again. And that, that's purely because of the situation between Russia and Ukraine and just that, that far east and almost Asian crossroad being geographically sort of near mm. the region and people just being a little bit hesitant. Mm. But in terms of the destination, I mean, Georgia, like this incredible blend of all of the beautiful European countries that you've been to, you know, Tbilisi itself is like a blend of Prague and Munich mixed with some sort of fairy tale Disney-like city mm. up in the Spinetti Mountains, to me, they're far more spectacular than the Swiss Alps, especially if you can go in wildflower season. So for people who love to hike, it's certainly nowhere near as crowded as, you know, hiking the French Alps or the Swiss Alps. So for those people who love to find those gems that aren't considered mass tourism yet, Georgia's the perfect option. And it's not on the Euro yet, so it makes it very affordable. And every part of the country is just so contrasting. You've got the beautiful Spinetti Mountains, which have these incredible uh, stone watch towers that are beautiful and just punctuate the landscape and just make it so completely different to any other mountain region in Europe. And you've got your Black Sea coastline, and then you've got your more traditional village-like towns and, of course, your capital cities as well. It's very contrasting. It's not an overly huge country, so you can cover a lot in a small period of time, which is also very appealing to a lot of people. And what about 
English is much English spoken there because, of course, they've got this wonderful written language that just, it's absolutely my favourite written language in the world. I can't make head or tail of it, of course, but it just looks like some beautiful alien script. Yeah, English is, is, I guess, like many countries, it's one of those languages that is starting to come through the younger generation with Georgia being part of the former Soviet Union. The older generation, their, their second language was always, of course, Russian, whereas now through the school system, they don't teach Russian anymore, they teach English. So it is coming through in the younger generation. Anybody that works in tourism, of course, speaks English, but it's it's never really a barrier with anywhere that you travel to when you're traveling around. You always have your guide with you as well, and of course, they're, they're multilingual. Mm. And when you're when putting together a tour, how do you do it? How do you choose the experiences that you're going to give the traveler? Of course. So it's, it's a combination of doing research and then going and testing them out to see that they deliver the style and the type of experience that we want. For us, we really look for experiences that are not crafted for tourism. We want experiences that feel quite organic and quite natural and you know, we do have genuine connection with the people who are delivering them. That's really important for, for our style and for what we want to deliver to our guests. So, you know, there is a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of things that you think sound great in theory. And then when you go and do a, we call them a dummy run or a test run, mm-hmm. you get disappointed and it's not what you had hoped it would be. Mm. And that that's why it's so important to do quality checks and to ensure that you know your product inside and out before it goes to market. Because somewhere like Georgia, whilst yes, tourism is, it is quite established because of how long the European market's been going there. But what our market expects is very different. So there's still always a level of education, the way that you look after European clients versus Australian clients. There's different expectations with different styles of travelers. And there's a, there's a big education piece that comes in from both sides, from us and our local partners. With, you know, the expectation of how something should be delivered when a tour is being operated. That's interesting that you say that about European and Australian travellers. What What is an example of some of those differences? Using Georgia as the example, you know, for us, Georgia is foreign and it's exotic and it's like another world away. For Europeans, it's just mm. that country that's the next one over. Yeah. So there's a very different mentality. You know, mm. Australian turn up and they've got this wonder and this, oh my God, this is amazing. Mm. Europeans, it's just another European country. Mm. It's a very different mindset. And, you know, it's really important when you're delivering an, a, a touring experience that for someone who is in absolute awe at what they're seeing and what they're experiencing, that you encourage that excitement. Whereas if it was just like, oh yeah, this is the next mountain or this is the next village, mm. you react and you treat the experience and you feed off the group. Mm. It's yeah, it's, it's a very different, it's different mentality. Interesting. Did you join one of your own tours or did you lead a tour or did you, were you there looking at it through a tourist's eyes? On my recent trip just now? Yes. I have led this tour before, but I was not leading it this time. So for me, this trip, I was going over there for a couple of different reasons. The first one, we've changed some of our hotels post-pandemic. And so I wanted to go over and do a quality check and just make sure that they were on point and that they, you know, tick the boxes for what we expect in terms of standard and service for our travelers. And the second reason that I was there was because of the Russia-Ukraine situation. We have had feedback that people have been hesitant to book Georgia because it borders Russia. 
Mm. And so for me, I wanted to go over and I wanted to see if there was an impact to the way that tourism was being delivered or experienced because of that proximity to Russia. And like I had hoped, there is absolutely nothing of concern that I identified when I was there. Mm. So it was very reassuring for me to be able to share with our clients and our database and also through social media as well that it's operation as per usual. Mm. George is amazing. It's ready for you. It's probably quieter than it usually is because of that proximity Mm. to Russia, but that's the perfect time to go. The crowds aren't there. You know, being an Australian-based company, we're governed by Smart Traveller. Smart Traveller does not have one single warning against travelling to Georgia. So it was also about dispelling those myths and providing reassurance to our travellers that it is okay, I'm here, Mm. everything is as per normal in Mm. terms of operating our tours. Can you talk us through the tour of where you actually went and what some of the experiences? Of course, I imagine being the, the birthplace of wine, there was a lot of wine drinking. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Georgia is the birthplace of all. Actually, no, Georgia and Armenia, they have this battle between who actually uh, is the founder of wine. Okay. Um, I believe it's the Georgians, but <laughs> the Armenians will challenge that. But okay. yeah, I mean, Georgia, we have a couple of different tours over there. The one that I was over there for, it was our standalone Georgia tour, which is our Discover Georgia. And that really takes in a whole lot of different experiences from starting in Tbilisi going through some of the wineries as you head um, further west into the country. There's a lot of bio wine, so organic wines and that sort of thing in Georgia too, and it's Mm. quite fascinating learning about the traditional methods of how wine is produced in Georgia, which is done in in clay vessels, which are then stored under the ground. Mm. That is super fascinating for someone who is very interested in the wine culture. And they weren't allowed to do that during the Soviet era, were they? Winemaking, and I I believe it's been kind of rebirthed, that method of winemaking. That's right. And a lot of things were stripped away culturally from the Georgians during that Soviet Mm. period, including, as you say, the wine production. And one of the things that's quite interesting when you go to these wineries is, yes, there is a, a new generation that's trying to bring back and reinvigorate this traditional method. But stories about how people hit things underground from the Soviets and, mm. you know, that there's a real sort of twist to the, to the wine culture over there, wanting to preserve and hide certain vintages. And these stories really make the experiences at the winery is very different mm. to, you know, going to a winery in the south of France, for oh, example. Sure. And so beyond the wineries, we do go to some very ancient sites. Uh, we go to a cave town where people used to actually live in caves and that's, you know, dating back wow. all the way to the first millennium. We do some beautiful hikes through some canyons and, of course, we head up into the Spinetti region, which is it's really the big bucket list. It's really mm. the draw card for a lot of people wanting to go to Georgia. It's got, you know, the region's highest mountains. It's got stunning glaciers that you can get pretty close to the Stonewatch Towers that I mentioned to you before. And depending on what month of the year you go, the wildflowers as well. With this, this trip I just did, it was the end of wildflower season. Mm. But I have been when it's been in full bloom and it is absolutely spectacular. Mm. And I guess the other draw card for that region is the, the Spans, the Spinetti people. They're, they have, they have their own language and their own culture and their own tradition. Mm. So it's almost like being in a different country within the country. And, and that's quite fascinating to a lot of people as well. And what about the food? I've heard a lot about Georgian food. 
Yeah, you definitely will come away a few kilos heavier, even (laughs) if you are doing a lot of walking. It's one thing that you just cannot avoid. Mm. The food is incredible and you want to taste everything. You don't want to leave anything behind because the flavors are quite different Mm. to other parts of Europe. And each day when you're in a different region within Georgia, the food changes slightly. So you're always trying something new. And we do also include quite a few masterclass experiences as well, Mm. where you can actually get hands-on in the kitchen with the local families and help them to prepare the meals as well. And I guess love that. It's it's not a, you know, commercial cooking class or anything Mm. like that. It's very personal. A lot of the accommodation that we stay in outside of the cities is family-run properties. So you are making meals with the families. They generally don't speak English, but, you know, through food, you can always find a way to communicate. <laughs> and uh, the food, it's its quite varied. It's a very meat-heavy mm. destination. It's certainly not one if you are um, looking for a huge diversity in vegetarian meals. <laughs> well, it's certainly you haven't done anything to dispel my wish to go there. I mean, you've got... <laughs> food, you've got wine, you've got beautiful scenery. Now, there definitely are some advantages to both the traveller and the community when you travel in small groups, right? You mentioned a little bit about being, you know, with somebody who can show you and and the security, etc. But what else? Yeah, I think the, the big advantages of, so for us, our small group, I should clarify first, our small group tours are a maximum of 12 people. So for us, they're quite small and intimate. That yeah. We don't do 50-seater coaches. To me, that's mm. – uh, yeah, no. <laughs> they put that in the same bucket as lying on a beach for seven yeah. days. <laughs> so for, for us, talking about group travel, I'm, I'm referring to our size groups, our maximum of 12. So the, the benefits, firstly, are having that fully escorted guide with you, someone who knows the local dialect, someone who can communicate someone who can, you know, break down any sort of barriers that there may be with communication. But more importantly, for somewhere like Georgia that's got such a a tangled history, to be able to explain that in depth as you go. And so you get that understanding of what you're seeing and piecing it together with the past, the present, the future, and it provides, you know, an extra layer of context. Further to that, obviously, travelling with a group, in particular, looking at our style again, you, you see this synergy in terms of like-minded personalities. Mm. So if you're someone that does like to share your experiences with other people, then traveling in a group tour, absolutely, that's the way to meet people who are of, you know, a similar type of traveler to yourself. Mm. And then beyond that, when you travel independently, you only know what you know. You don't know everything. You only know what you can research or what you sort of get told word of mouth on the street. When you're traveling with a group, because our groups are small, we can be really flexible and really nimble. Mm. We can go into the homes of our guides and meet their families. When I was just there now, perfect example, our guide, she grew up just in on the Black Sea coast in Georgia, very close to the Russian border, and the town that she was in is actually currently under Russian occupation. Mm. And she fled from her home and ended up being a refugee in her own country and was living in a sanatorium. She took us to that sanatorium, which is now completely abandoned, and showed us where she wow. spent her teenage years living with her family. Mm. And those sorts of experiences mm. you don't get when you're traveling independently. You really mm. only get those sorts of experiences when you're traveling with a guide. Mm. And to be able to effectively relive something that you couldn't really put into context if you read it in a book, 
Mm -hmm. But to have someone who's lived that, who has that experience, who can talk from personal experience and then physically show you certain areas that have impacted her life and, you know, it continues on as to why she is now in tourism and it it becomes a whole story in itself. Mm. It gives you another layer to your travel experience that you just simply don't get when traveling independently. What about the effect on the environment? Do you think it's better to be group traveling than traveling independently or is there no difference? I think it comes down to who you choose to travel with Mm. in terms of tour companies and also how you travel if you are an independent traveler. You know, there are certain tour companies out there who are very, very focused on sustainability, no plastic, Mm. making sure that they leave the absolute lowest, you know, they leave only footprints behind Mm. effectively. Mm. There's other companies where that doesn't matter. They just want to churn through the numbers. They just want the cheapest price and they just want to, you know, it's it's a commercial transactional business. Mm. So it it comes down to you as a person. What does that side of it mean to you? Does it not mean anything and you don't really care? Yeah. Or are you someone who is a conscious traveler and you want to make sure that your impacts as a traveler are low? Mm. And if that is you, then you would very likely do the research to find which travel company fits your ethos. Whereas if you're an independent traveler, you probably look at things very differently. You may be very sustainably minded and, you know, make sure you always hang up your towels and put your rubbish in the bin and don't buy plastic bottles and reuse containers and all of that sort of thing. But there's other people who just, that's just not their mindset mm. and they have no issue chucking a, you know, chip packet on the ground or something like that. So at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual and what they want their footprint to be. I, and I guess in, in groups, you can often disperse travellers more. When you're doing the research by yourself, you tend to come up with the same places and, you know, a lot of travellers will end up in the same places. But if you're in a group that's been, the the trip has been researched, you are more likely to spread your spending, I assume, to visit different places outside those main tourist centres as well. Absolutely. You know, a few years ago when Lonely Planet was the Bible of how everybody travelled and everyone would go to the same hotels and the same restaurants and the same sites and and that sort of thing, you, you can see it, you know, you, you turn up somewhere and you can see the mainstream tourists. Yeah. When it comes to wanting to be more supportive of local communities, then yes, I do feel that this is really where group travel does play a huge role mm. because like companies that do the smaller, more intimate groups where we do have flexibility with where we can eat, and obviously if you're with 50 other people, you're quite limited really to that sort of mass market type dining scene Mm. but with the tour companies that are more intimate they're not interested in taking their guests to where everybody else is Mm. they want to look for a local family or a local restaurant or something that you know is supporting the local community and providing jobs and income and all the sort of fringe benefits that flow on from that and that is something that they consciously do when well us and other companies like us do their product development They're, they're looking for ways to support the community, not only from an economic perspective, but from all the flow on that that goes on beyond that in terms of, you know, who makes the tablecloth? Is that being imported from China or are they being, you know, hand-stitched by the little local grandmothers four houses down the road that are still trying to keep local tapestry in trade? Mm. And that's the big difference as well between the smaller tour operators and the big guys. So it sounds like authenticity plays a big part as well. You're going to get a much more authentic experience in a small group. So who are your typical travellers? Our typical travellers are 
generally 55 plus. They are people who are very well traveled. They've been there, done that, and they're looking for that what's new and what's next. Mm. Uh, they are people who are prepared to pay a little bit more for that exclusivity when it comes to experiences and connection with local people. Mm-hmm. And for them, luxury is not about five-star white glove butler service. It is about that exclusivity, doing things that other people haven't, having those experiences that you can't find on Google and really getting that rewarding self-satisfaction, self-growth from their travel experience. Mm. Do you have many single travellers? We do actually. We get a lot of single travellers, mostly single female travellers, more so than single male Mm. travellers. And yes, that, that is another thing that has really emerged post pandemic, the, the rise of the solo traveler. Yeah. And yes, we absolutely have seen that come through on our tours as well. Mm. What about the people who lead the tours? Are they locals or are they from Australia or a mix of both? It's a mix of both depending on the destination. So we always have local guides everywhere that we operate. And as I mentioned earlier, that is because of local relationships, local dialects, communications, all those things that, you know, are super critical to the execution of, of the tour operating well. Mm. The destinations where we also put on a Crooked Compass staff member from Australia are the destinations where things can be a little bit more challenging, places like Papua New Guinea, for example, mm. where, yeah, we, we do need to play things a little bit differently behind the scenes when a tour is in operation over there compared to an area that is a little bit more established in tourism. It's it's very frontier in Mm. places like New Guinea. Mm -hmm. Is there anywhere that you won't go for political or even personal reasons? That's a tricky one. Well, yes, there's places that we wouldn't go and that's purely because we can't get insurance. And as I mentioned earlier as well, we're governed by Smart Traveller. So anything that falls under Do Not Travel, we cannot legally operate there that that's pretty much our barrier to not being able to do certain Mm. destinations there's destinations that we would love to do the minute that it is safe to resume operations again Syria was one of those you know I I had been um, touring in Syria in 2008 so before I had Crooked Compass and I was lucky enough to experience that pre-war. Mm. And the minute that things settled and we were able to get the odd departure away there this year before the current situation, they were so ready for tourism. You know, the hotels have reopened, the hospitality in that country is just incredible. And tourism does play a huge role in rebuilding economies in um, countries that have been affected by war. Mm. And so there are destinations on our radar that Still, unfortunately, we cannot operate in, but we are getting ready for it might not be for another five years or so before it's possible or safe. But, you know, again, travel feedback, what people want, where they want to go, when it is safe to do so, we take all of that on board. And, yeah, there's many destinations that are not possible right now, but in the future they will be. Mm. And, yeah, we work behind the scenes to, to do what we can to be ready to go for when we can. People have long memories, don't they? I went to Bosnia a couple of years ago and I still had people going, oh, is it safe? Yeah. So, Lisa, can we go through some of the destinations that you currently cover? Sure. So our biggest destination is Mongolia. Oh, Um, I'd love to go there too. Yeah, Mongolia has been uh, our number one pre-pandemic and it's it's come back pretty quickly to number one post-pandemic as well and 
even better, it's now visa-free for Australians for the next couple of years as a trial. Mm-hmm. New Guinea is our, Papua New Guinea is our number two destination. And then after that, we sort of moved more. Well, Middle East is doing very, very well for us. So that's on a bit of a pause for now. The Caucasus region, so Georgia, Azerbaijan and Armenia, certainly on the rebound. And Central Asia, the five stands, the Silk Road, that is absolutely up and coming once again now that the borders are all open between all five. Mm. And again, visa processes have become much more simplified post-pandemic, which you know makes it much more appealing for, for people to venture into that Central Asia um, area. But beyond that, I mean, we, we do South America. We do the northern part of South America, Colombia, the Guyanas. We do bits and pieces of Southeast Asia. We do a fair bit in Indonesia. Bits and pieces of Africa. North Africa is really strong for us. Mm. Your Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, they've been a little bit out of control this year in a good way for mm. us. So, yeah, I mean, we, we pretty much operate globally apart from North America. But again, looking for those destinations that really offer a cultural experience that is not your stock standard, where we can be creative destinations that are still very much emerging and where we can really help shape what tourism looks like in a lot of these emerging destinations as well. You talked about a few destinations that when they're declared safe that you'd like to uh, put on your schedule. What are they? Well, Israel was quite significant for us and, yes, that, that will come back at some point once mm. the, the conflict has been resolved. Iran was another one that was mm. huge for us pre-pandemic and obviously a very different political situation is happening there. That one is sitting in the wing. Mm. Syria obviously is currently impacted with the, the Israel situation at the moment, so that's disappeared. That will come back. And Lebanon. Lebanon was one of our biggest Middle East destinations this year, which again has now moved on to do not travel. Mm. So there's there's quite a few in that region that are just sitting there patiently. Mm. We are still, you know, in contact with our teams on the ground, obviously checking to see that they're all okay, but also to to, to reassure them that we're still here. So yeah. when things improve, we are going to be coming back to your countries and we are going to help rebuild and, and play our part and, you know, help pay your, your guides and drivers and, and that sort of thing, which is really important in such a global economy like what tourism is. Mm. Now, I know this is going to be like asking what your favourite child is, but what's the best travel experience, not necessarily destination, but experience you've ever had? Best travel experience. Something like putting you on the spot, hey? Yeah, because there's so many different ways I could answer this. <laughs> I think the best travel experience would have, and again, this, this will loop back to what I said right at the beginning of our chat about my curiosity, mm. would be the time that I spent in North Korea. Oh, wow. When yes. was that? I was there in 2018. Mm-hmm. That was the most mind-boggling, confusing I cannot quite understand what I am witnessing experience, which was perfect for my curious mind. Mm. But at the same time, so naturally beautiful mm. that you would put it up there with being in the Rockies or Colorado or just stunning. The mountains were beautiful. The water was pristine. The beaches were just incredible. Yeah, naturally, it was unlike anything I've seen in terms of pristineness. 
the actual functionality of that that culture under that regime is completely confusing and I was just could not get my head around it. It is certainly not a destination that you go to to question things, at least not while you're in the country anyway. Mm. You go there to observe. Mm. And you just watching the, the way that that country operates is just it's fascinating in a very backwards way. Mm. And it's certainly not for everybody, but for me, I just, I was fascinated. I just, even, you know, it's been years since I've been there and I'll head back over once the, the borders are still shut there at the moment. Once they reopen, I'll head back over. Mm. But it's, it's just fascinating from so many different angles. And, you know, whether you agree with the regime or not or, or whatever you think of their leader is, is irrelevant because you just go there to try and understand how, how is this still possible mm. that a country still functions like this? Yeah. And then on the flip side, they have this incredible cherry blossom season like what you get in South Korea and Japan and Taiwan mm. and it's just not something that you would even think of when you think of North Korea mm. and the cherry blossoms are everywhere and it's beautiful mm. and yeah it's just it's very very contrasting and they have ski fields and bring in all new ski equipment every year from China and yes it's, it's a very confusing complex country but probably one of the most fascinating experiences I have ever had nothing nothing else quite comes close to what that country makes you feel when you're there. Oh, gosh. Well, I, I have already been through my North Korea obsession without going to North Korea, but it was, <laughs> was on my radar for a while and every holiday my husband would say, no, we're not going to North Korea. We're not going to North Korea. Uh, but I've, I've come out the other end now. But that does it does sound absolutely fascinating and slightly slightly scary at the same time. So I might leave that one for you. I think you might be a little, <laughs> little bit more intrepid than I am. But Lisa, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been really fascinating hearing about Crooked Compass. And I, as I said before, I think we probably have very similar travel philosophies. I am also an incredibly curious person. So, ah, There you go. Well, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, it's a shame that we won't be able to get you to North Korea, but <laughs> maybe somewhere else. Maybe we'll get you to Georgia one day. Definitely. That would be fantastic. And I will put some details of Crooked Compass and Lisa's tours on the website. Well, listeners, that's it for this episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. And if you'd like to help support Extra Virgin and keep us ad free, please consider buying us a virtual coffee on the website www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com.